Can we thank the Rasich family again one more time? This is amazing. This is such a gift to us to have a setting like this. I only have a four-hour message, so hopefully you guys brought a blanket. No, I'm excited to share with you guys tonight my passion. I joke with my wife, like, I've got one message that I've just preached, like, the past 15 years. I just changed a little bit, but the theme overall is typically always the same, which is the goodness of God. That if you can change what people believe about God, you can change the whole entire relationship with God. And I want to open tonight first by illuminating the power of a story to influence truth. Think about it. Our culture, everything that we believe in, everything we contend for what is true, hinges on a story. Everything you believe to be true has its foundation in a story. And right now our culture is fighting a number of wars, but not wars with bullets, wars with stories. Stories of America's founding, stories of violence, stories of gender identity, stories of corruption and conspiracy, stories is at the root of everything that we believe and contend for our truth. And our world is fighting a battle for truth with story. Faith and religion hinges on story. The creation of the universe, in order to believe that you have to believe the story. Sin and the fall of mankind, you have to believe the story. Redemption and eternal life, you have to believe the story. Story is our foundation of what we identify as truth. And stories are powerful because when they accumulate, they create a narrative about something. And that narrative then governs what we believe to be true about that thing. It acts as a gatekeeper to everything we believe about that one thing going forward, past, and present. And the most powerful narrative on the planet is the one that we believe about God. The narrative we believe about God creates an image of God in our head and our heart. And that narrative, that narrative, what we believe about God, it controls everything about our relationship with God. Just like everything else that we believe to be true, the narrative we believe about God will control everything about what we believe about his nature and his character. The narrative we believe about God is the accumulation of the stories we've been told to believe about God. But what if a lot of what we believe about God is actually wrong? Wrong because the stories we believed about God were actually flawed. It only takes one truth teller to change a narrative. And when the narrative changes, what you believe changes. To illustrate, let me give you a fictitious analogy in story form. Again, this is fiction. <laughs> My dad, he's a family doctor in Troutdale, Oregon. Any Troutdalers? No, okay. Nice. He, in my mind, in truth, he's the definition of integrity, character, honor, service. Wow, didn't see that one coming. Really love my dad. And so that part is true. But let me give you a story and analogy. Imagine I'm in my 20s, and I'm going to a tech conference in Las Vegas. It's late, it's 2 a.m., and of course, I didn't plan ahead of time. I buy my hotel room on Priceline, and I get a crappy hotel somewhere far off the strip. 
I hail an Uber at two in the morning. The driver looks at the address and is like, whoa, this is a terrible spot. And as the Uber drivers take me to the destination, we come to an intersection, dimly lit, and there's a building on the side, and the sign says, the broken mirror. And the driver points to that and says, that right there is the worst place in all the world. Unspeakable things go on there. It's a brothel. It's this awful place. It's the worst of the worst there. As I'm looking at it, I notice something. Is that my dad? <laughs> like looking like, is that, I think that's my dad. I'm like rubbing my eyes, look there, and, and in disbelief, it is my father outside. New balance shoes, salt and pepper hair, rim glasses and all. And a nuclear bomb goes off in my soul as I see him enter the brothel as I drive away. The driver, sense in the moment, tries his best to console me, trying to say, well, everyone has their secrets. And everything I knew to be true about my dad up to that point is now suddenly shattered. And I, of course, could never tell his secret. What would I even say? What, who would I tell it to? What would happen to him? What would happen to me? I can't handle it. And despite my devastation, my dad is still my dad. He's part of my life. I don't really know what to think of him anymore but I'm not going to give him my heart. I know that for sure. That piece of information has now poisoned my ability to have a relationship with him. And I have so many questions that I can never bear to ask. And so the years go by, and my dad pursues me, but I keep my distance, never being able to overcome that moment. And, and rationalize that, well, he's just my biological father, but nothing more. I don't pursue him, nor really care to know him. Decades pass by. And so do airplanes. So decades pass by, still harboring the secret. My dad in old age passes away. We're estranged. I attend his funeral and surprise, there are hundreds of people at his funeral. Now he was a doctor after all, it's not that big of a surprise. And normally people grieve when they lose their father, but I, I didn't grieve, it wasn't that meaningful to me. I didn't really have a relationship with him. He's my biological dad, who's now dead. And a woman gets up to speak approaches the microphone, choking back tears, and says, this man saved my life. And again, my dad's a doctor. Like, well, what medical ailment did he fix with you? True story, right? She chokes up and she says, when I was eight years old, I was trafficked. I was held hostage in Las Vegas at a place called The Broken Window. And this man came in and rescued me. And then person after person after person gets up and says how my father went to the worst places in all the earth to rescue young girls from trafficking. Turns out that my dad, in addition to being a physician, is also an undercover agent that works to rescue women who are trapped and enslaved. And he was chosen because he's a physician. He can apply the medical expertise of the time. And of course, he never shared his work for fear of us. He didn't want to be a target, he didn't want us to be a target. And through all the years of my estrangements, I come to realize my dad was an awesome, amazing dad. I missed it. I believed a lie about my dad entire life. I allowed that to ruin my relationship with him. I can never get back. I missed out on having a relationship with the greatest person I could have ever known who happened to my dad. I never even really knew him. I only knew the version of him that was based 
on a lie. And from that lie, I withheld love from him. I resisted his pursuits, all because of one lie. Now, this is an analogy, not true, to, to illustrate the power of story, to create a narrative in your head that then completely transforms what you believe to be true. And this story is actually the perfect depiction of what is going on in the hearts of millions of people and their relationship with God. Just substitute my father for our heavenly father. Because there was a story that created a narrative in their head that then poisoned their relationship with God. And when you find out what people believe about God, his nature, his character, what they describe of God, to me, when they describe God the Father, to me, it sounds like they're describing the Godfather. The pictures that people have in their minds of what God is like is heartbreaking. And this is the case for actually a lot of us. Where does it come from? It actually comes from the stories we believe. Maybe it was a passage that we read in the Old Testament that we were terrified of, or maybe something another Christian said that was hurtful, or maybe a sermon one day. But somewhere along the line, we get these lies that plant into our belief system that then poison the narrative we believe about God and therefore poisons our relationship and our capacity to have a relationship with him. Because the narrative you believe about God in your head and in your heart will control everything about you with him. It'll control your desire for a relationship. It'll control your willingness to pray. It'll control everything about you in your relationship with God. The narrative in your head about God. Here's what's interesting. A lot of people are cool with Jesus. You don't have to be a Christian to be down with Jesus. But most are unsure about God the Father. The Father's mysterious, scary, unknown. Some people have tried to reconcile this by good cop, bad cop. You know, like, well, God of the Old Testament who, like, obliterates your body with boils is, you know, one guy. And Jesus who's, like, got perfect teeth and holding a lamb and calling children on his lap or different people. And they, a good cop, bad cop. The only problem with this is, is Jesus said, I have come to reveal the Father. And he says, he, he's saying this to people who know the Old Testament, who know everything there is to know about Yahweh. They say, I've come to reveal the Father. And Jesus goes further and says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He said, I only do what I see the Father doing. He said, the Father and I are one. And yet we have this total incongruity between Jesus, the New Testament, and God the Father, or for many, the Godfather. So we have a problem on our hands. What do we do about this broken image of God the Father? And again, that is a problem because your entire desire for a relationship with God is controlled by that narrative in your head about what you believe about God. And I submit to you that we have broken stories that we all believe about God that creates a broken narrative about God that then suppresses and keeps us away from having a relationship with him. And here's another interesting thing in my experience is that most people are not anti-God. I have met very few true atheists. I don't know if that's your experience. But very few people I've experienced say that they don't believe in any God at all. They're just like, well, I don't know. I believe in something, they just don't know what it is. 
And so people are not anti-God. Here's what's going on. is They are anti the version of God that they've been presented. And I don't blame them. I think the God that a lot of people believe in is actually unlovable. So I want to help correct some of the lies that we believe about God. And these lies come from stories which then create narratives of God in our head. And here's the thing is that lies are believable. I'm going to share with you something you're like, I wouldn't have imagined that we could lie. And you're okay to disagree with me. I just ask if you disagree with me, cool. But just pursue God. If you don't like this version, if you don't like what I'm going to provoke you with, it's something you maybe always believed your entire life, that's totally cool. But allow that to spur you on to discovering relationship with God that is connected with him. But what I found is that when I correct the story, I can see the lies clearly, and I actually can have a powerful relationship with him. And the lie I want to correct tonight is that God separates from us when we fall. That God separates from us when we fall. The prominent and predominant belief of God is that he is so holy that he cannot be near sin. He cannot look upon it. He can't be around it. He can't coexist with it. He can't share the same space with it. So in response to the imperfect and the sinful, God's holiness and righteousness demands that he separate. And this narrative that God separates from us is woven into the fabric of the gospel message. And we've all seen the graphics and illustrations and like little drawings where like we're on one side of a cliff, God's on the other, there's a chasm, it's like hell or fire or something, and like, and then Jesus, like they make this little cross bridge, you know, and, and Jesus is the bridge. And so the gospel most of us has been taught is not just that we fall short of the glory of God, it's actually also the belief that we've fallen short of the glory of God, and as a result, God has fled from us. But with Jesus, he can bring us back. Because as theologians again say that God the Father, his perfection, his holiness, and his righteousness requires he separates from us. They say that God cannot be in the presence of any sin, otherwise he is no longer holy and perfect. In other words, God's holiness and righteousness is defined by his separation from sin, which, you've noticed, we kind of have a problem with. We believe a very specific narrative in our heads that I have a language for. It's the narrative of sin and separation. You may have never heard that before. It's a term I'm inventing. A narrative of sin and separation where there's sin and then God flees and runs away because his holiness demands it. Now, let me be clear. We sin. We need a savior. We need redemption. We are unable to save ourselves. And that is all true. But... We don't have to accept that God's nature requires him to separate from us. Is the sin and separation narrative true? Well, let's see. There's two areas in the Bible where this is really taught. It's implanted. Sometimes it's not even taught like this. It's like subtle. It's, it's implied. It's, it's a derivative. But the two primary places are the Garden of Eden and the crucifixion of Jesus. So the first is the Garden of Eden, and you probably all know the story, and Adam and Eve, they disobeyed God, and they ate the forbidden fruit. And our memory is that God kicks them out of the garden because of his perfection and his holiness. And because of that, they are separated. And God says, I'm out of here. But let's revisit this story a little bit more and find out, does God really separate from us when there's sin? I'm not going to share the whole patches. Let me just share a brief bit. But Genesis 2 says, 
And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called out to man and said to him, where are you? Now, if, if God cannot even find you, how lost are you? I mean, that is really good. And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So who went and hid? Who separated? So Adam and Eve did. God went looking. The story is not Adam and Eve sinned, and God said, I'm out of here, peace out. I'll see you in heaven. You better look out for a man named Jesus, and I'll catch up with you then. No, God goes chasing after Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve are the ones who run and hide, and God comes looking. This is also true in the natural. I have two kids, Scarlett and Maverick, and without any example or any reason, when my kids disobey, their natural response to failure is to separate. No one taught them this, despite my best to like win them for a better view. It's embedded. They fail, they run, they slam the door, they go to a corner. How do they learn this? It's embedded into our humanity. It's our instinct and response that failure leads to shame, and shame leads to estrangement. What does a good father do when their child fails? Do you withdraw? No. You go find them. Yes, he's like, where are you? Come here. Let's talk about it. What happened? Let's talk. But a child's natural instinct to failure is to retreat, but a father's natural instinct is to go and find them and draw near. Imagine if I, as a father, said, you know what? I can't be in the presence of a disobedient child. And I just, like, got lost. I'd be, I'd be like, yeah, go get the servant, Jesus, and fix them so that they can now be in my presence. That's actually our theology. That God the Father says, I can't handle it. Go get someone to clean them up and then bring them to me. I'm putting in very blunt kind of crass terms to illuminate the narrative we have, but in many ways that is what we feel because God is so holy that he needs Jesus to cleanse us before he can be brought to the Father. And what this has done is this has put us in an adversarial position with the Father whom Jesus came to earth to reconcile us with. Are you with me? But remember, even with Jesus as the cleanup crew, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus has the same requirements and mandates of holiness. He's every bit holy and righteous as the Father. But apparently Jesus has an exemption. Something's not right. So to suggest that God departs from us when we sin, I believe is actually to make God the Father out to be a worse dad than we are to our earthly kids. Here's the truth. Sin produces shame. Shame creates separation through estrangement. When we fail, we expect and fear rejection. I believe we run and hide because oftentimes when we fail, it's either easier for me to reject myself before you reject me. And so you look at the pattern of sin and shame. You see people who run wise because is they fear what's going to happen. And so they say, I would rather reject myself before you can reject me. I have an amazing example in the scriptures I'll give to you in a second. The point is, I believe that the story, the fall, is that man fell. We need a savior redemption. Please hear me about that. But then it was man. It was like, I am going to run and flee and hide. 
And that is what's really going on. God did not retreat. God goes looking. And Jesus modeled us this exact principle in his life on earth. Remember, Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He says, I only do what I see him doing. And so the Pharisees expected and modeled sin and separation. You do this, out of the camp. You know, like, you just like, go kill some animals and bring them back. You know, like, it is this, like, you are exiled based on your failure until you can fix it and come back. And the Pharisees are obsessed with Jesus. Why are you not getting rid of these sinners around you? You're not separating in response to sin. And Jesus was having none of it. They were mad at Jesus for, uh, for congregating and being with sinners. And they said this, it says, this man receives sinners and eats with them. The scandal. Because Jesus was not separating from sin. And then Jesus rebukes the Pharisees with three slam-dunk parables to fix their broken narrative about the Father, but also the kingdom. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, which we also know as the prodigal son. And notice the story is not the story of the runaway father, it's the story of the runaway son. God chases and finds you. What is common about each of these three parables? And Jesus' rebuke against this sin and separation narrative, his rebuke and what's the common thread there is that something is lost and someone goes and finds it. It, it illustrates that it is the father who is the one who goes looking to end the separation. And remember, I told you I'd give you an example of shame causing us to separate, ultimately us rejecting ourselves before we can get rejected? Well, the prodigal son story has this amazing illustration of it as well. If you recall, the story of the prodigal son, I won't read it, but the son goes to the father and says, I want my inheritance now, which in Jewish times is to say, I want you dead. Father gives him what he wants. Okay? Here's your inheritance. It says the son went and squandered it all on loose living, which is a euphemism for prostitutes. So let me pick up the story after this. This is the son, after he's come into his senses, it says, but when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I'm dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in you in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And so he got up. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate, for the son of mine was dead, but has come back to life again. He was lost, but now he's found. And they began to celebrate. The father and the son were separated. By whose will? The son's. Not the father. And what do we find the father doing after the son departed? Continually searching for him. The text doesn't tell us how long the father's been like watching out there. But he is, and if the pattern is the same, the child separates and God remains on the pursuit to look. And I love this is that when the father in the story sees the son, what does he do? He runs. Now, again, this is where our text kind of misses because in the Old Testament, these Jewish men, 
men of wealth, like they were very esteemed. They wore like big robes, you know, like you're wealthy, like you're respected, there's honor, like you don't run. It's like 400 degrees outside. And then the father, abandoning all shame, takes up his robe and sprints for his son. How mortifying and shameful, right? To have an esteemed man like that going back to his son who wasted everything. But it's the father's joy to abandon all embarrassment and shame and run to his son. And what was the son's response? Did you catch it? He tried to invalidate his identity as a son. The son says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Meaning, let me reject you. Or let me reject me before you reject me. So I don't have to face you rejecting me. He said, I will become your hired servant, offering to pay off his shame with works. My favorite part of the story here, do you notice? The father doesn't even acknowledge it. Doesn't even be like, well, we'll talk about it. Like, no, you're like, you're still my son. Just like wholesale just ignores it and throws a party. The father does something really important here. He extinguishes the shame of his son by throwing a party and a celebration of, of life for he was once dead, but now he's alive. Remember, shame is what causes separation through estrangement. Scarlett one time made a big mistake and she ran into her room sobbing, declaring, I'm a bad girl, a bad girl. And she kept on saying over and over again. Devastated, she pleaded and begged that we would have her be adopted by another family because she was so filled with shame. It's like, where did you learn this stuff? And I was like, no, it is our natural inclination that when we feel shame, we want to light ourselves on fire, reject our identity so that we don't have to face the rejection of anybody else and they run and hide. So shame is actually an attack on your identity. There's a difference between remorse and shame. Remorse is like, I did something bad. Shame is, I am something bad. And so when we fall, when we have sin, like it creates shame and call our, our identity into question. And we therefore separate and we want to be apart from anybody as soon as possible. But the best parents, they run to their kids when they fail, and they extinguish the shame. And so we see in the story of the prodigal son how the father tended to the shame of his son, throwing a party. And we also see the same thing in the Garden of Eden, an often overlooked detail in the original story of the fall. What did Adam and Eve do to cover their shame after they fell? Anybody know? Big leaves. They made garments of fig leaves for themselves where they were naked. And very people recognize this, but God goes and finds them. Of course, now we know that God the Father can be with people who've sinned, and he tends to their shame, and he makes them garments of skin. He didn't have to do that. But because of shame, the Father had compassion and tended to their shame. Were there still consequences to their decision? Absolutely. But did God separate because of his holiness? No. So we see in the garden and also modeled by Jesus that this narrative of sin and separation is not even accurate. A more accurate narrative of what happened in the garden is more of shame and estrangement. Sin leads to shame and shame leads to our estrangement. That we separate and leave. Are we still needing salvation? Absolutely, yes. But did God flee from us because of sin? No. But I know someone out there is like, but wait, there's a scripture. I've got an answer to you. 
What about Jesus on the cross? What about Jesus in Matthew 27, where Jesus hanging on the cross, breathing his last words, screams out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Somebody in here has got to be thinking that. That passage, more than any other passage in the entire Bible, has created and defined and defended the narrative that God's holiness and his righteousness demands that he separate in response to sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus sin, God made Jesus who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Theologians say that God, being all holy and perfect, could not look upon his son who became our sin. That God separated himself from Jesus because God's holiness demanded he look away. Let me quote one of the most popular theologians on earth about this passage, about these words that Jesus spoke. This theologian says, at three o'clock on that day, he was forsaken, and not only by his disciples, but by God himself. And theology students and seminaries everywhere say yes and amen. And it would appear that Jesus on the cross proves that God the Father separates from us from sin, that he cannot coexist or even look upon evil. And it shows that Jesus suffered full detachment from the Father at the cross. And if Jesus felt detachment from the Father, then surely we are, because he's the model for our humanity. But is this the truth? Well, in the Old Testament, there are a number of prophetic passages that foretell and predict the coming of the Messiah. Psalm 89, Psalm 102, Psalm 32, Psalm 45, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, they're all over the place. There are all sorts of prophetic passages that reveal the coming of the Savior so that when it happened, people who knew the scriptures would be able to look at Jesus and say, hey, I know this. This was foretold in the scriptures, and he's the Messiah. But there is one psalm, just one, that is the most vivid in who the Messiah is and what he will experience. There's one psalm that reveals the most about the Messiah in his final hour. It is a single psalm that strings together undeniable events of death that are going to become upon the Messiah, so that when it happened, people would have no doubt that Jesus was the Messiah. In this one psalm, it says this about the Messiah's death. They pierced my hands and feet. They mocked me. I was abandoned by my friends and family. No bone was broken. Blood and water flowed from my side. They cast lots for my garments, and all the ends of the earth will hear of my death. All of these prophecies in one psalm. So that when you saw this, and you recognized the psalm, you would know, without a doubt, Jesus was the Messiah. This one psalm that had perfect and exact accuracy for the death of Jesus is Psalm 22. And anyone who would have been remotely familiar with Psalm 22 on the day of the crucifixion, seeing Jesus there, putting the pieces together, lots, blood from the side, they would have instantly known this is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies concerning Messiah. And over a thousand years prior were written. And guess what? Most Jews had memorized a lot of these psalms. Many had memorized the Messianic passages so they would be able to see and know the Messiah when he showed up. What we don't know is that in Jewish culture of the day, 
To quote the first line of a psalm is to quote the entire psalm. To quote the very first line of a psalm and end there is shorthand for the whole entire psalm. When you say just the first line, the audience knows you're referencing the entire psalm. And remember, many Jews had memorized the psalms. Well, guess what the very first line of Psalm 22 is? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is not declaring that God the Father abandoned him. Jesus is stating the first line of the psalm so that everybody who knew Psalm 22, had known all the prophecies, would suddenly get it. They suddenly would realize that Jesus was the Messiah, that they just crucified the one that they've been waiting for. And they would recognize that they witnessed in the moment the Psalm 22, and all the prophecies foretelling the Messiah had just been fulfilled. And that is the other linchpin, this narrative that God separates from us when we sin. We know that conclusively that God is not a God who can't handle our sin and must look away and must like run out. Jesus was never detached from the Father. Jesus' last breath was spent telling the world, I am the Messiah. To all of you who know the scriptures, I'm telling you the result. I'm giving you the secret. That was his last breath. In every narrative we believe about sin, we almost always believe that God's response to sin is to separate because that's his nature and his identity. This is what most people believe, and we believe that God's proximity and closeness to us is actually a measurement of our recent sin, right? When we fall, like, we feel distant from God, or when we struggle, like, we, we naturally fill in this gap, and we naturally fill in this narrative that God separates, and we often will use the garden, and we'll use the crucifixion of Jesus to prove that point, and I want you to know it's not true. I want you to know that whenever you fall, no matter what you're going through, that that is the moment that God springs into action to try and extinguish your shame so that he can be reconciled with you. Again, do we need to be forgiven? Do we need to be saved? Do we need Jesus? Ah, absolutely. We need to be made new. All those things are true. But does God the Father have the character and the nature that abandons us because of our sin? No. We estranged ourselves from him because of sin and shame. Because of that, we need to be reconciled to him. And when we fix the lies in our story, we can fix the narrative. And when we fix the narrative, we can change the relationship that we have with God. The narrative of sin and separation was never an accurate depiction of God's heart. The accurate narrative is what sin does to us, which is shame and estrangement. No matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what you believe, God is pursuing you. And when you change your narrative, your heart gives you permission to be found, to be embraced and restored. One truth can change a story. And that story changes the narrative. And that narrative changes everything about your relationship with God. This lie of sin and separation has deceived so many for so long. And that lie is the precursor to another incredibly damaging lie. Do you know what it is? You have to come next time and I will tell you. Hey. I've got lots of these messages. 
You guys just got one of five or six of these that I have of just fundamental lies that have poisoned my relationship with God through the years. And the pursuit of knowing that God is much better than I can understand and imagine you search the scriptures, you weed out the lies, and you reframe the stories that create the narratives. And that is what helps you have a vibrant life and relationship in God. To end this time, here's my position. God is unfathomably good. He is better than we can ever imagine. He is better than even our best attempts to describe his goodness. I could preach at you for five hours and try my best, and it still would be the fraction of his real authentic goodness. And our challenge is to weed through the stories and the narratives and define his true character and nature and have a relationship with that. Don't have a relationship with a sermon. <laughs> Don't have a relationship with a, a book or a random passage. Have a relationship with a real creator who really loves you. And unfortunately, many people like the narrative and the knowledge of my father are going to live their entire lives believing a lie that caused them to be estranged and miss out on the greatest relationship in all the universe. My prayer for you is that the stories that have built the narrative of what you believe in your heart would be made clean, and that you would be able to know the true heart of God and experience him for how he really is. Thank you, guys. Amen. Amen.